Ladies and gentlemen, Nicholas and Capital Link, distinguished panelists, my name is Stian Suli. I'm the country manager for DNV here in Japan, and I have the great honor and privilege to try to lead this, which should be a very engaging discussion on the pathway to green shipping. And before I start the introduction of, uh, of the panelists, I just want to try to set the scene a bit for the forthcoming discussion. So if you just give me a couple of minutes, um, I just want to summarize what we see as the present status. I think we can all agree that this decade, the 2020s, will be a critical decade of uh, setting our industry decisively on the course to net zero. We're seeing now the recent years that ship the shipping's decarbonization is uh, slowly uh, gaining uh, some speed. And that is also clear from our latest uh, maritime forecast report that is in this year in its seventh uh, edition. Uh, what we see is that there is definitely uh, uh, promising rising orders for ship to runs on uh, lower carbon fuels. But as you all know, there are very few existing vessels in the present fleet that is doing so. So at uh, MEPC 80 uh, earlier this year, the governments of the world seemed to, to recognize and acknowledge that, which then led to IMO's revised greenhouse gas strategy, driving accelerated net zero ambitions. And moreover, we also see that ship emissions are now getting uh, direct uh, pricing of their emissions through emission uh, trading scheme by EU, which was also mentioned in the panel earlier today, from 2024. And from my point of view, this is probably only the beginning of the start of various schemes where we'll see that emissions will have a direct uh, price. We also see that non-regulatory uh, stakeholders, such as cargo owners, charters, financing institutions, are playing increasingly an important uh, role in driving this development. In the response to growing environmental public concerns, uh, these stakeholders are increasingly putting their investments in more eco-friendly shipping, uh, supported by different schemes such as Poseidon principles and also sea cargo charter. On the technology side, we see that the fuel technology transition has already uh, started in our industry. And uh, so far this year, we see that half of the um, ordered tonnage can run either on LNG, LPG, and the new kid on the block, uh, methanol. And that's compared with one third of that uh, tonnage uh, last year. So while the fuel technology transition is gathering space, the search for different kinds of solutions is definitely continuing. And we know that technology to reduce both energy uh, consumption and to reduce the need for, um, for uh, expensive carbon-neutral fuel will be important. New and novel uh, technology, such as uh, wind-assisted propulsion, liquefied hydrogen, uh, air lubrication systems, also onboard carbon capture that was mentioned earlier, and maybe a bit controversial, nuclear propulsion, is definitely being investigated. But most importantly, we see that collaboration is definitely what is needed to ensure that the future fuel supply, the infrastructure, and the investment decisions are made appropriate. Decarbonization of shipping will definitely come with a lot of cost. There is no doubt about that. 
And these are costs that cannot be absorbed by one single stakeholder. They needs to be absorbed by the whole value chain. So that means that new contractual uh, arrangements will be needed in order to have these uh, costs allocated all the way to reaching the end uh, consumer. And with this as a small backdrop for our discussion today, I'm looking forward to a very engaged and interesting discussion with our panelists. So let me just, before we start, introduce you quite quickly. Um, we start from my left here. It's uh, Mr. Santides, which has been with IFCOR for more than 15 years. But he has also uh, over 30 years of work experience with an extensive uh, shipping uh, industry background, having served in various senior executive roles. Uh, Trifon created and now leads IFCOR uh, Gaybrit's sustainability desk, which supports its global shipping clients to be at the forefront of the maritime industry's decarbonization revolution, delivering com uh, commercially viable strategies for them to seeking to minimize their operational uh, and environmental impact and transit towards a zero carbon future. Next to him, we have Akamatsu-san from Itochu uh, Corporation. He joined the Marine Department of Itochu in, back in 1992 and worked initially mainly on new building projects in, for clients in Asia and in Europe. He was a London representative from 2005 to 2010. And in 2019, he was assigned as Deputy General Manager of the Marine Department responsible for creating new business areas related to decarbonization. He has been driving the development of the ammonium uh, fuel ship with associated supply chain. And last year, uh, Akamatsu-san was assigned as general manager of Itochu's Green Innovation Business Unit. Next to him again, you have a familiar face. He has already been introduced earlier today. Uh, he was at the fleet optimization uh, panel. But thank you very much, Ikeda-san, for also joining this panel later today. You're a busy man today, for sure. I will not repeat the full introduction of Ikeda-san. I will just again mention that uh, he this year, he became an executive officer for, for K-Line. So congratulations uh, for, for that. Uh, he is responsible for the greenhouse gas reduction strategy and also shipbuilding in K-Line. And he's been with K-Line for, I think, more than 30 years. Okay. Thank you, Stian. I'm back. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and next to him, I think we have uh, Kashima-san, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> uh, Kashima-san um, has been with NYK for a substantial amount of time, all the way back to the 80s, uh, close to 40 years, I believe, now. Um, he has been a corporate officer in uh, NYK since 2018 and was also this year appointed uh, Senior Managing Executive Officer in NYK. Congratulations for that, Kashima-san. And uh, he is also Chief Executive of NYK Technical Headquarters. And then all the way to the end here, our fifth panelist is uh, Mr. Jeffrey Chan. He is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Purus with over two decades of asset management uh, experience. He played an essential role in uh, shaping Purus sustainability strategy from the very beginning, I heard. Uh, prior to joining Purus, he served as a senior managing director in Entrust Global, where he was a key member of the Global Investment Committee and managed investments and client portfolios. So, as you can see, we have a quite diverse and should be very interesting panel uh, here today. Five of them up on stage, making it maybe a bit tight around the, the table, but I hope you can manage. 
So, pathway to green shipping. I'll try, I will try to kick it off with a, at least a simply framed question, but a bit, maybe a bit more complex to, to answer. And that is basically from the panelists' point of view. What is, from your perspective today, driving the green transition in the maritime industry? And also, if you can point to parts of the industry or stakeholders that is also lagging behind. So I think we'll start all the way up to the left here with, uh, with Jeffrey, if you can kick off the discussion. Uh, sure, thank you, and thank you for Capital Link for, for having me, and um, very happy to, to be participating on this panel, so thank you for that. Um, it's, a, it's a really broad question, and I think that there's obviously many different stakeholders um, that are really driving it. Um, with Pyrrhus, we really started uh, with, the, with the objective of really enabling the clean energy transition, and that's really by providing low-carbon vessels uh, to our wind and our gas customers, uh, really global energy majors. Uh, so for us, quite frankly, it started with us. Um, it was really looking at an opportunity both from a human perspective as well, for, from, as, well as from a business perspective um, of, of really helping to catalyze that change. This is obviously something very important for us. Uh, we are a company that is, has the majority of our operations based in Europe and, in, and as well as in Asia and Singapore. So uh, we're really kind of spanning two, two different continents here. And we're really seeing differences in what's kind of driving sustainability and change. Uh, I'm actually based in, in the US and uh, uh, you know, um, you really have different clock speeds of whether it's your customers, whether it's um, uh, consumers like you and I, whether it's governments, um, and you really have uh, a lot of kind of contradictory forces kind of uh, uh, at play here. So it's really, I, I think, important to, to figure out how to navigate that. I'll, I'll give you a good example just from, from my backyard. You have the United States passing the very poorly named Inflation Reduction Act, which provides a lot of subsidies um, for alternative fuels and uh, looking to really promote decarbonization. But at the same time, uh, when you're looking at offshore wind, there's been a lot of pushback recently uh, from the various states. You actually have a lot of states passing anti-ESG legislation, uh, specifically because they're arguing that it is detrimental to the fossil fuel industry. And, and as I think everybody in the room knows, uh, the United States is a big, uh, ultimately, exporter of energy. A lot of that is fossil-based. So um, it's a very different environment in Europe. Um, where you have to see the government and a lot of companies being at the forefront of driving sustainability and decarbonization, and we're also seeing that in Asia as well. So it, it's pretty diverse, um, uh, and it, it really depends on uh, where you are region by region. Good. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Um, Kashima-san from, from NYK. Yep. How's yours and NYK's <coughs> perspective on, on who is driving the, the green transition in, in shipping? Thank you very much, Skiansan. So, so my name is Kashima, and so I'm responsible for the so technical division in NYK. So, especially for the ship, uh, green shipping. So, I'd like to talk about NYK's present activity. So, first, so in the 
so fuel technology transition. So there are a lot of uh, proven technology like so LNG dual fuel and so methanol DF. So in the case of NIK, now NIK, we are now trying to challenge to build so ammonia uh, tugboat and also so-called AFMGC, uh, uh, ammonia, so fuel, uh, medium-sized, so uh, gas carrier. So to be so built in Japan and to be delivered in so year 2024 and year 2026, respectively. So especially how I understand the ammonia so dual fuel vessel would be the most one of the most uh, difficult technology in this so industry. Then we are now trying to so create so we like to the first mover uh, in this field. Then we are now trying to so taking care and also creating so the some manuals so related to the so called the so ammonia safety, especially for the so, so called risk assessment, uh, especially in full consideration of the toxic so, nature of NH3 ammonia. So, in order to keep that uh, safe software and also uh, hardware of the ships, so to keep that safe for the seafarers on board. So, that's why, so nowadays, so NYK is now putting the first priority to ammonia at this moment. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kajima-san. Uh, a fellowship <laughs> owner, operator, big one in, in, uh, in Japan, Ikeda-san. Uh, do you have uh, similar perspectives or? Okay. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, in the morning session, uh, uh, panelists already discussed about energy transition uh, with uh, 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 globally, the, we need uh, some infrastructure and the supply chain of the bunker. And so now I don't intend to repeat again, but uh, uh, we, uh, environmental issue is very most important for the business, not only the shipping sector, but all kind of business. And, and uh, so we have to move forward step by step, even step by step. Uh, so Akamatsu-san of Itochi Corporation kindly organized the integrated project for the ammonia uh, fueled vessels with a uh, uh, capsized bulker. Uh, so now we, uh, together with uh, Itochi Corporation and uh, NS United, uh, Nihon Shipyard and uh, Mitsui and S uh, as a engine manufacturer, uh, try to develop the uh, ammonia fueled vessel. And uh, it's, uh, uh, how can I say, the uh, specific uh, project but uh, uh, if the we have to break through uh, the some uh, energy transition, it's a kind of the prototype model. So we expect to uh, develop this project and expand then, yeah. Thank you, Ikeda-san. And then uh, straight over to Akamatsu-san representing Itochu, one of the biggest trading houses uh, in Japan. And, and as you heard by Ikeda-san, with a big focus on, on ammonia, uh, these days, uh, how, how do you see kind of the pathway to green shipping? 
Okay, thank you. And uh, so I think uh, already the policy, uh, the framework is there, and the strategy is set up by IMO, and the demand also is there, and the many you know, end users, car owners, requested the industries to prepare green shipping. And um, technology, uh, some fuel, like uh, LNG, methanol, already there, and ammonia is ongoing. And then uh, some fuel, of course, the next is uh, scalability, how we can produce green fuel at uh, some scale. So this is also an issue. Therefore, I think step-by-step uh, uh, step, uh, for each kind of fuel, each kind of option, uh, it is ongoing. And uh, then maybe today, uh, this is uh, initiated by Capital Link. So next, we have to invite the shipping and the finance, uh, financial industry to join this journey together. Thank you. Thank you, Akamatsu-san. And then finally, uh, Sentides, uh, Mr. Sentides, do you have any views on, on the present situation when it yeah, comes thank to you. Thank you, Stan. Um, I, I think I'll answer this from a sort of more high level. I think, you know, this, this, what, we're, what we're experiencing now in the shipping industry is really, it's a really emotionally driven at the consumer level. Uh, you, you, you will see consumers are far more you know, sensitive to sustainable issues, especially in mature economies. Uh, this, this filters through into politics. The, you know, the politicians want to basically appease the voters. That drives the policy, and then you, you, you get these regulations, which, um, which we're all facing now in the shipping industry. So, so I think you know, biz businesses, shipping, shipping companies, we've got to plan within the scope of the regulation to stay profitable. Um, I would say there's probably no surprise that you see like uh, container line companies uh, they're probably more ahead than the bulkers, maybe. You know, I think they're probably more in the direct line of fire of the consumers. Um, you've got big corporations, they're big, big, big demanders of uh, sustainability. You know, we see uh, these net zero pledges soaring. You know, there's 10,000 corporations um, basically pledging net zero by 2050. So I think, you know, all these things which are are driving a little bit what we're seeing in our industry. And then you've got this, I would say, um, this growing momentum for the, the uh, what I would call the co-ownership of this um, challenge to reduce the carbon emissions. I think this is, you know, you see, we see this establishment for these green corridors. Um, you've got the industrial giants, you know, they, they want to scale up demand and supply for these green fuels. And, uh, you know, I think all this has to come. It comes with a price, and you know. And if the consumer is not willing to pay for it, um, you know, I think that's that could be could be a little bit of a headwind uh, for us and what we try to do. You know, I think I think this is this is a little bit the issue. And you know, I think you know what's what's lagging. Maybe it's this this. How do we how do we approach this issue of the scalability for these? these alternative fuels that we are, you know, we, we are, are trying to do, I think that's going to be a very big challenge, um, you know, going forward, basically. For sure, yeah, the scalability challenge, both, I think, when it comes to 2030 ambitions, but also 2050 additions on, on two different levels, but uh, mm. those are really challenging uh, targets for, for our industry to, to cope with. Uh, Talking about regulations, it was mentioned earlier today in, in the previous panel, uh, kind of the impact on, on EU ETS, and I think this is one of the hotter topics uh, these days uh, on the regulatory scene. 
And which was also mentioned in, in the previous panel that uh, the shipping, in general, the shipping community stresses that like shipping is truly international. And it's quite important to keep the, or preserving the role as IMO, for IMO to be the prime regulatory uh, arena. Uh, several uh, stakeholders have kind of at least voiced some kind of concerns about the introduction of um, EU uh, ETS, it's a regional measure. Well, it, it will now be introduced, so there is there's no doubt about that, but uh, that means we're going for a regional approach rather than uh, a global approach, uh, at least in the first instance. Um, how, how do you as representatives of the industry see the impact uh, of a regulatory scheme such as um, EU uh, ETS? Maybe we can, we can get the honor of, since you finished the previous round, uh, <laughs> Sure. Mr. Santides, uh, maybe you can also kick no, off. Thank you. Look, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good good question. I think I think the for me, look, it's it's not perfect, right? This um, EU ETS story is not perfect, but I think what we can say is it, it is definitely spurring developments. You know, I think it, it's starting a real. You know, we're getting a real conversation going here. When you when you're putting a price on carbon, an expensive one potentially. Um, I think that's really, you know, focusing everybody, and I think just for that alone, it's probably not a bad thing for for our journey on this um, towards a sort of lower carbon future. I, I agree with you. I think you know um, the IMO. You know, it's been criticised, perhaps not acting fast enough. Um, it's it's you know, I think by its very nature, it's a very political organisation. So I think you've got all the um, member states, which are going to be basically um, protecting their own economic interests, and I think that will affect a little bit, you know, how how, how things uh, sort of are being dealt with at, at that level. Yet, um, I was in London not so long ago uh, on this London Shipping Week, and um, I have to admit, uh, there was you you, you felt this. Since the last MEPC meeting back in July, which they did, and then they were talking about it in London Shipping Week, you know, this there was the you you feel there's a there's a real shifting gear, right? There's a noticeable shifting gear what they're trying to do. So I think you know I think you know they've they've adopted this revised greenhouse strategy. They've got these indicative waypoints now coming up 2030, 2040. Okay, the language is watered down a little bit, but yet I think the, you know the intentions there. Um, for me, though, I think personally, uh, you know, if we really are going to take this, you know, this this whole uh, decarbonisation uh, journey, really accelerate it going forward, I think it, you know, we do need to sort of address this at a, at a, at a global level. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, global carbon levy, and that's certainly what um, it was, seems to be on the agenda now at, at IMO level, which I think is a good thing in itself. So I think perhaps, you know, that was a little bit um, coming from, you know, from, from perhaps what, what the, the EU has, has been doing, you know. So, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, Europe, they've set themselves a very, very tall climate goal. Um, you know, that's very ambitious what they're doing. Are they, are they going too far? You know, it's perhaps... Perhaps time will tell. I think you know. I think it's perhaps they they look at it almost like a, a protectionist measure. Perhaps you know. You know. I I could well see 
um, the emergence of more compulsory systems coming, you know, whilst we whilst we we, we wait and see what uh, what the IMO are doing. So yeah, you know, perhaps uh, the notion of free trade is not really existing anymore. You know, it's uh, a little bit that for me. Thank you, uh, Ikeda-san from <laughs> from Kedan. Okay, <laughs> jumping um, over to you. What's the what's the Japanese perspective on this, or or is there? Um, I'm sorry that this is not Japanese, but uh, this is my private opinion about the <laughs> uh, ETS, uh, because uh, the I'm not sure the impact of the ETS, EU ETS, but uh, uh, at the same time I cannot see uh, how can shipping sector receive the return uh, from the collecting money because uh, uh, no incentive or no return from the EU ETS, we just pay cost. Uh, in such sense, the, if the, uh, such a regional regulation uh, happened, uh, not only the EU, but uh, for example, another country or another area, shipping company just pay. And uh, even the IMO uh, set up the global mechanism, cost, uh, uh, economical mechanism, but uh, uh, in such case uh, we need some uh, uh, return or incentive from the collecting money. Uh, how we can <laughs> develop the uh, renewable or new alternative fuel. So the collect collecting money should be uh, used uh, for the new development. Yeah, that's my opinion. Uh, thank you, thank you very much, Ikeazan. I think, I think your response kind of highlights the challenge of, of how to distribute the cost across the value chain towards the, the end consumer. And I think this is definitely, I'm not fortunately not a ship owner in that sense, but uh, this is the big challenge for the, for the ship owners and, and operators these days on, on kind of how to prepare for something that's coming so soon uh, and how to kind of amend the contracts and the commercial terms. Uh, that's definitely probably very high on, on your agenda these, uh, these days. Um, with, with that in mind, uh, Kashima-san from NYK, how do you kind of prepare for EU ETS. Okay. Uh, you, you are one of the world's biggest ship owners and you, you also charter a lot of, of tonnage. So, so this must be a, a relatively big task. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yes, yeah, it's very big task also. So yeah, basically we have to comply with this EU ETS regulation from next year. So at this moment, so after implementing this new rule, we would be noticed that the CO2 becomes the cost. And so we would accelerate the decarbonation activity as soon as possible. Yeah, that's true. And, but on the contrary, so basically as a company at NYK, we are supporting Japanese government policy, uh, namely global approach rather than local approach. Then, so we are a bit very concerned that the, we would be forced to pay duplicated tax payment in the different region, not, in the, uh, not only uh, Europe, but also other region. So additionally, that is our concern, yeah. <coughs> but 
basically we have to comply with such regulation. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I think that that's definitely a huge challenge for, for all of you sitting, uh, or most of you at least, sitting around this, uh, this table, and plenty of the people out there in the audience um, as well. Um, moving a bit uh, away from, from EU ETS, uh, but kind of linked to the regional approach and, and the kind of urgency and understanding and um, engagement on green or uh, on environmental concerns. Uh, you all in this panel, you, you represent international <coughs> companies with, with footholds in, in Asia and Europe and, and elsewhere. And I, I would like to try to understand from your point of, of view, uh, how do you experience kind of the urgency and also priority of decarbonization in, I would say, typically Asia versus Europe, if it's possible to, to generalize uh, in, in these terms. Um, maybe we can start with uh, Jeffrey. Uh. Sure, uh, maybe I'll just say a few things on the EU e e yeah, sure. ETS as well, because I think this is really also related to that question, right? So if you take uh, a bit of a broader view, because this goes through the development as uh, of ammonia and other alternative fuels, the reality is these fuels are much more expensive, right? And at the end of the day, we're all economic animals, <coughs> and um, the tendency is to go with what is the most profitable and cheapest option. So in order to encourage the take-up of these new fuels that we're all collectively working on developing, they're three to five X the cost. Ultimately, who's going to pay for that, right? So when you look at the ETS as a market-based measure of what doing what I believe is what <clears throat> the role of government ultimately is, whether it's in uh, the shipping sector for decarbonization or other sectors, it's about serving as a catalyst to facilitate a move towards a direction, uh, whether that's through direct subsidies, whether that's through forms of taxations, but it's all about uh, making the new approach and the new alternative, certainly in the longer term, a more economically viable uh, alternative, right? So if now, if you have a price on carbon, now it does spur uh, companies, whether it's ship owners, operators, uh, the cargo owners, um, to actually spend money on this technology. Because if we are to provide tonnage with alternative fuels, alternative fuels propulsions, that's just gonna cost more. And if there's no incentive to pay for that from the charters, from ultimately end consumers like you, you or me, then it's just not gonna happen. Um, and the, the way the EU ETS is set up I think it is a regional approach today, but the interesting thing is that they've set it up such that they're only taxing a portion of the emissions for vessels coming in and out of Europe. So that provides an opportunity for other countries to essentially duplicate the same type of scheme and all of a sudden you have a global approach. So um, it's not perfect, of course, but it does provide a pathway to provide a more global approach and we'll have to see how that comes out. Um, so and I think that gets into kind of um, Asia and Europe, certainly different clock speeds. Europe's obviously been at the forefront of the, the, the decarbonization movement. Um, and there's also been, I think, a, a difference in risk-taking appetite uh, in general, uh, Europe versus Asia, um, and also a focus on different technologies, right? And that's partly driven by the availability of technology, the availability of feedstock, obviously Europe being relatively smaller, it's more focused on electrification, for example, offshore wind, et cetera, and you see more of the low carbon gases in the Asian region. So um, I think the, 
one interesting thing that probably doesn't get enough attention is that certainly throughout the COVID era, there was probably less talking between the West and the East. Mm -hmm. So you've really seen a bit of a divergence in kind of the approaches taken, the mindset taken. And I think the, um, what we need to focus on collectively if we were, if we are to kind of drive forward this transition, which is, uh, I think we can all agree is for, for the benefit of all society and all humanities, we need to, we need to speak more both the East and the West. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, Akamatsu son of Itochu, do you agree to Jeffrey's observations or, or what's your perspective on the urgency and, and priority of decarbonization seen from, from your perspective? Okay, so I think uh, so this agenda, uh, of course, uh, all of us understood in the past 30 years, uh, we had uh, uh, same discussions, but only discussions. But in the past two, three or uh, you know, three years, the situation is a bit changing. And especially in Europe, uh, the people start to talk uh, more about uh, global warming issues. And uh, therefore, definitely, uh, this agenda is initiated by European people, it's no doubt. But if you talk about uh, shipping industries, uh, the vessel uh, should be built in uh, Asian shipyards, in any cases. So uh, this is not uh, you know, Europe and Asia, so we have to go together. And we have a different role, different scope, sometimes uh, you know, together, sometimes separate. But uh, I think that is uh, the, the issue, the matter of all of us. Therefore, I think from, from now, we have to go together. Very good. Go together. Collaboration is the key. I think that uh, I think most of us uh, agree to that. Kashima-san, uh, Nikeda-san, any other perspectives from, from a Japan ship owner point of view? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the, in case of the trading to Europe from the Asia, it's very far from, uh, I, I mean, a long distance. So we need a big banker facility, vessel uh, uh, banker tank. So the, uh, for the uh, ship designer, it's a very, how can I say, big impact for the uh, uh, big capacity. But. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, another uh, issue. Uh, recently, the uh, uh, Carolina we we will participate uh, Northern Light project uh, of the liquefied uh, CO2 carrier uh, in the Norwegian project. And uh, uh, recently, the, our client or car owner uh, very interested in such. Uh, uh, project, uh, what's going on in Norway, and uh, also the Caroline at the same time try, uh, try to develop the uh, uh, LCO2 carrier from the uh, Maizuru to Tomakomai, Hokkaido, uh, under the uh, Nedo-san uh, support. And, uh, so, as I said, energy transition it takes uh, time for globally, but. Uh, uh, it's a kind of the one solution uh, for the decarbonization, mm, uh, not decarbonization, but uh, uh, kind of the uh, uh, saving the uh, <coughs> carbon emission. Uh, the, uh, it's, uh, I, I think the, uh, we have a chance to uh, transport uh, CO2 itself uh, as a liquefied. Uh, so the Northern Project, Northern Light Project is a very so remarkable project for the uh, global. So the, we we hope to how can I say expand the, such kind of the project. 
Yeah, I think you're touching very well upon my, my next question here, uh, which is oh, actually... I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, uh, it's a good segue to the next, uh, next question, which uh, actually we, we know that, of course, there is lots of challenges with, uh, with, the, with the transition to green shipping or to the, the general energy transition in the world. But that means that there will also be business uh, opportunities. Uh, and one of those you, you just pointed out with... Uh, with uh, carriage of, of CO2, and uh, that's one good example of, of how kind of the decarbonization challenge also becomes a, a business opportunity. Uh, another aspect is, of course, that to have sufficient amounts of uh, low carbon or zero carbon fuel, we need to invest vast amounts into renewable uh, energy, offshore wind as, as one example. Uh, NYK Kashima-san, uh, where do you see kind of the, the, the opportunity space when it comes to the, to the decarbonization yeah. challenge and, and the green transition? Uh, yes, yeah, frankly, I'm very positive uh, about the so decarbonization activity for the future. So, especially the, there are a lot of business opportunity in the, this industry. So, so, especially as so previously says, Collaboration is very important, and also, so for NYK, we are now so participating in the Musk McKinney Center in Europe, and also we became the member of the GCMD in Singapore. So this kind of cooperation activity is very much important for the not only NYK but also other parties concerned to accelerate the decarbonization so activities in this industry. So from such viewpoint, yeah, we are so like to talk uh, the, as much as possible for the other parties concerned who has some business chance. So even not only for NYK but also the industry. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Kashima-san. Trifon, uh, from from your point of view, where do you kind of see the business opportunities uh, from from your perspective and? Um, and from your company's kind of role in the, in the industry? Um, let, let me answer this uh, from a perspective as let's say we're you know, facilitators of uh, business. You know, look at our, our you know, Ifco Galbraiths, our, our core business is broken, right? So, but we find ourselves increasingly, I would say, taking on the role as advisors. You know, we, you know, our aim is to ensure that our clients you know, can can always remain competitive. Uh, what I would call in this sort of uh, phase of adaption, really, we're, we're going through this sort of period of adaption. Let's say this energy transition, right? Uh, whilst we go to this sort of lower carbon and hopefully a zero carbon future. So I think you know the business opportunities. I would say for the shipping companies, it's all about adapting, right? You know, it's. Um, you know, we, we, we feel there's a, there's a very good investment case to sort of actually be upgrading the existing fleet. Um, together with our partners, Clear Blue Markets, you know, we're helping um, private owners, for example, they're, they're doing uh, retrofit programs for energy-saving devices. Um, so it's, it's about making what what the clients have already in their hands, um, and then even we can take that um, to a carbon registry and we can generate carbon finance. So I think it's all about the owners getting, getting ahead of the curve. They, they realize the carbon metrics are gonna get more and more stringent going forward. 
Um, so it's it's a way it's a way of rewarding that overachievement from today. So I think it's you know you're getting the saving, and you're getting that incentive to do that as well. You know uh, that's a little bit from on that. And then yeah, we, I mean we have our sale and purchase teams there. They're actively advising clients. You know uh, considering placing new building orders. You know these dual fuel ready options. Um, I guess it's a way for the owners to sort of future proof themselves a little bit. You know, you, you typically could probably take anything between two to three years before, you know, before by ordering a ship, taking delivery, add on another five years for your first uh, special survey dry docking. And it's, it's a way for them to sort of, let's say, make a, almost like make a, an investment on the, an investment decision on the market today, but you're sort of almost postponing that, that fuel economics question for for a, for a later moment. So I think, yeah, so it's all about how can we guide our clients to make reasonable investments without ending up with some stranded asset down the line. I think that's a little bit from our perspective. Very good. Uh, uh, since we're talking about opportunities, business opportunities there, I guess we're, there's all business people in this room. I think it will be interesting to get both Akamatsu-san's and, and also Jeffrey's perspective on what, what do you see as kind of your primary opportunity space in this green transition? Maybe first Akamatsu-san and, and then Jeffrey, and then I think we're basically out of time after that. So Akamatsu-san first. Okay, thank you. So as Ikeda-san explained, that we thought you are now focused on ammonia fuel vessel with supply chain. And we, because we believe uh, that this is the area which we can contribute to the market. Of course, if you talk about biofuel or methanol, uh, this is handled by our colleagues, another you know, department, because this is more fuel side. But if you talk about ammonia, uh, we have to take care of all aspects, not only shipbuilding uh, to build a vessel uh, with ammonia engine, but also shipping to own the operate and for the end user but also the bunkering <coughs> to supply fuel. And what kind of fuel? Uh, today, ammonia is uh, not fuel. It's uh, you know, just a chemical product for some industries, such as a fertilizer. And uh, no one consider ammonia as a fuel. And uh, also, we have to consider like a life cycle assessment. So today, we have only gray ammonia, but uh, the industries need uh, something clean ammonia, but uh, no definition, what is clean? So uh, we have to focus how to produce ammonia for as a clean fuel, and how to set up price mechanism for each kind of uh, clean fuel. Because if we talk about uh, renewable, you know, uh, energy-based uh, green ammonia, and uh, uh, natural gas-based uh, blue ammonia with CCS, totally different uh, approach. So price mechanism should be totally different. So. As a chemical itself, it's same, NH3. But uh, uh, anything other than NH3, totally different. That's why we have to discuss with the various parties how to set up a supply chain and for fuel, and how to connect to the shipping industries, including cargos, because uh, we have to provide supply, the fuel, clean fuel, which is also you know, acceptable by shippers. But uh, shippers, there is no criteria. They don't know what should be a clean fuel. If we talk to IMO, they don't know. <laughs> and uh, energy industries, they don't know. Therefore, if we talk about the life cycle assessment, people talk, 
life cycle, but no one knows what does it mean. There is no international criteria. There is no unified uh, concept at all. And uh, now, you know, industries, uh, they just started to talk about the CCS. But uh, each country, they don't have any local rule. What is the CCS? Then how we can make a unified international rule if no country have their own rules? Therefore, if we talk about the blue fuel based on CCS, no one knows what is, what is it. So uh, I think uh, we have to integrate everything, so step by step. And uh, so uh, we would like to invite all of the you know, industry parties, not only shipping industries, shipbuilding, technology people, fuel people, or authorities, or sometimes academic, sometimes port authorities, if it is a safety issue. Well, uh, if it is a certificate, then we have to invite uh, you know, some auditors. Therefore, we have to consider full supply chain for both fuel, shipping, and then end user, because shipping is to carry commodity. Then uh, end user uh, intend to make uh, something based on these uh, mm -hmm. products. Then they intend to sell uh, such products, so like iron ore, steel, and car. Therefore, this is also the part of the supply chain for these commodities. Therefore, it's very challenging how we should integrate together. So we need uh, all parties participants and also on the financing industries. So uh, that is a challenge, but uh, uh, that is a long journey. And uh, so uh, our uh, idea is to go together. That's all. Thank very you. good. And then, uh, sorry for not giving you so much time for your, thank you very much, Akumatsu-san. Then, uh, Jeffrey, if you can try to summarize your opportunity space in, in one minute. I'll, I'll keep it very simple, <laughs> yeah. red lights on. Um, but for us, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So we focus on different parts of the value chain. On the upstream side, it is supporting the production of renewable electricity that's really providing uh, CSOVs, CTVs, uh, that are crucial for the commissioning and the O&M over the, the life of the wind farms. So that's what we do. And, and those vessels themselves are using battery electric to, uh, hybrid technology um, with pathway to increase the use of those technologies. Uh, methanol is an option in the future as well. Uh, and then on the transport of low carbon fuels like ammonia, like uh, LNG, we have a fleet of vessels that transport both uh, ammonia today uh, obviously, most of that is pretty much all fertilizer, but in the future, that hopefully will be blue and green ammonia, as well as LNG. We'll continue to expand that as the market develops for those low-carbon gases. Excellent. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, fellow panelists. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Thank you. Thank you. Yes? Question. Okay, question from audience. Yeah. Starbucks is a member to the Green Corridor together with BHP Rio Tinto and Oldendorf. So we believe and support ammonia as a favorable option for net zero carbon emissions. We are very confident about the possibility of designing the Japanese shipyards and NSY designing the next generation ammonia fuel vessel. We have doubt on some other factors Supply chain, it will eventually play out. Why? Because you can scale up ammonia. So we, we are very strong supporters of, of that. 
and that's why we developed the operational protocol for Australia to China, together with our partners. Uh, I have three questions which probably have to be answered very quickly. You're dealing with MAN, the NW. We are monitoring developments with MAN. We just finished testing of one cylinder. We know what is, Akamatsu san is smiling. We, we know that they have tested one cylinder. The question is, number one question, what do you think is a realistic timing of getting MAN engine fully tested before it goes onto the uh, Newcastle Max? This goes hand in hand with the next point, which is we are still trying to figure out how will crews deal with safety? And even before that, the safety protocol that has to be developed and adopted by authorities, which we're still looking at, at uh, the whole scene. And finally, regulation for trading, bunkering. And there is one final question, and you can answer whatever you want out of this. We are a little bit concerned about social issues. So big ships, we believe will be applicable for ammonia, but they will be trading mostly in remote areas, at least at the beginning, uh, until the technology is 10 years into operation. While methanol, which has many other issues, mainly because of the scalability of real e-methanol supply, is more easily adaptable to uh, regional trades, populated trades, we don't go further who has ordered. But these are the two main changes. But I think the most important one is real expectation of delivery of engine, man is competing with WinGT, and real protocol of getting the engine on your vessel with a standard to operate. It's a very long question, so. What are the three questions of the day? What, whatever, uh, whatever wants to be. I think, I think engine and delivery of the vessel is probably key. We have 40 Cape and Newcastle Maxes. We care a lot about your answer. Thank you. <laughs> okay, and uh, so first, of course, MAM. So you have uh, access to the MAM, so maybe you can see. Uh, but uh, recently they made a webinar, and uh, what we can say that uh, engine test is uh, still ongoing. And uh, so at this stage, they can say a, this is no uh, negative surprise. So means uh, it's going well. And uh, we can say a, in 2.0, that is uh, the one of our concern, because if we, even if we save the CO2, if we have an 2.0, then no meaning. But we confirm that uh, according to their test, uh, the N2 emission is very limited. So that is good news. That's why they, we assume, uh, so technically speaking, uh, engine can be done. That's why they, we go further. So that is our uh, current uh, positions. Delivery time, uh, of course, uh, very difficult to say because uh, one cylinder test is still ongoing and then they have full cylinder test, okay? And uh, officially speaking, uh, the MAN announced in the past to, uh, to deliver the first uh, engine by the end of 2024. But uh, of course, that was the original plan, then it should be, should be you know, delayed and uh, so we cannot uh, say uh, too much about, about it, but uh, so, uh, but uh, in any case, original, uh, uh, our original idea was uh, the, the delivery of the first person is early 2026. It's very difficult to keep it because of the delay of engine test. But uh, then uh, after we have a more, you know, uh, official result from engine test, then we intend to uh, review what will be a 
exact delivery for fast bus. So that, that is our current status. And the safety issue maybe. Okay. Okay. Safety issue. The, uh, for the. Uh, okay. Uh, at the viewpoint of the uh, shipbuilding, uh, the we uh, of course the we uh, segregate the space itself, like uh, uh, bulkhead or double tube or uh, with uh, ammonia supply. Uh, and uh, but uh, in general, uh, the ammonia is hard to burn uh, combustion itself because uh, its property. So the uh, when the vessel approaching the port or uh, any how can I say uh, uh, Singapore like a Singapore Strait, at that time the, uh, the vessel itself switch to uh, conventional oil, so that we never use the ammonia itself. The uh, only the o ocean <coughs> navigation, and uh, uh, also the you pointed out the social. Uh, impact, uh, but uh, actually the uh, only bunkering, ammonia bunkering, uh, have uh, some uh, uh, possibility to leak to uh, atmosphere, but uh, 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 it's very difficult to say. Uh, uh, it's a very small quantity, even if the leakage happened. Because uh, uh, we have an emergency shutdown system, also that we will take a showering uh, curtain for protecting the uh, <coughs> uh, to, to, to expose to the atmosphere. So the, we, we have uh, some uh, safety measure uh, to uh, minimize the risk. So the, uh, of course, the, uh, finally the port authority was any flag or something uh, uh, to confirm the uh, countermeasure or safety issue. But uh, I believe that we can manage the, such a uh, ammonia leakage problem or toxic because uh, uh, ammonia is a kind of smelling. So the human being can acknowledge if the only small leakage happened uh, human can acknowledge, oh, it's ammonia leaking. So the, uh, maybe the human uh, being the faster than a detector, <laughs> I think. This is my answer. Okay. And so the, for bunkering, so because we are working for the bunkering in a global network, so the pilot project in Singapore, and then uh, next is Spain. And then uh, uh, actually this week we announced the uh, Swiss Canal and some other idea. And our idea is, uh, as Ikrasan uh, pointed out, the social is an issue uh, against the leakage. We cannot take a responsibility for social issues, uh, which should be handled by social, uh, you know, the, like authorities or government at the local area. But uh, our approach is to uh, make carry out the bunkering at uh, Anchorage, like uh, many kilometers from offshore. Then we can focus on the safety for crews. If we, maybe at a, uh, in the future, we may have to make a bunkering in terminal. Then I think uh, it should be issue. But uh, our demonstration uh, is to carry out offshore side. So that's the idea. Can I just add, it also helps to use a class society that has long experience in developing safety guidelines <laughs> for alternatives. <I'm> <laughs> 
Okay, uh, then I think a little bit over time, but uh, again, a very interesting and engaging discussion. Thank you very much, fellow panelists. <laughs>